0: Welcome back to the Mindful Hunter podcast. I'm your host as always, Jay Nickel. Today is episode 19 and it is going to be our second installment of an open Q&A. We're going to cover topics as wide-ranging as supplements, backcountry gear, camera equipment, how to do some e-scouting, lots of great stuff. So super excited about today's episode. Let's get this out of the way as always. I greatly appreciate any engagement with the platform whatsoever, likes, comments, subscribes. One of the most beneficial things you can do is actually go on your podcast player of choice and leave a five-star review and write something that really helps out the algorithm and pushes the podcast up and we get more people listening which creates more opportunities to grow the podcast and that should enable me to do cooler stuff with the podcast. So right out of the gate, Thank you to anybody who's done that in the past and anybody who's going to do that in the future. It's greatly appreciated. And as much as I hate to do it, I kind of have to open this week with another apology we missed last week again. However, there's some really great reasons why we missed last week and it's actually going to be really beneficial for the podcast as a whole. So a couple of really cool things have been going on. Number one, my business is growing incredibly fast this year, and it's just been a challenge to stay on top of that while still giving the Mindful Hunter channel the energy that it deserves. And sometimes business just has to win out because that's what puts food on the table and it needs to maintain the priority. So that was part of what's going on. The second part is that we bought a new house. And we've been going through the hell that it that it requires to get this house ready for sale. So the cool thing about the new house is it's much larger. It's a fully detached home. We live in downtown Vancouver. We've been in a townhouse up until now. So that's really limited the amount of room that I have here just to do stuff for you guys. So it's hard to film tech tutorials. It's, you know, the podcast, if there's people home or activity in the other rooms, there's noise and it's, it's just made things really difficult. And I can't leave gear set up because I'm filming in my office right now. So every time I film something, I got to set everything up and take everything down. Suffice it to say, The new place has an amazing basement so there's going to be tons of room and it also has a garage that i'm turning into a workshop and part of the basement there's like this kind of landing alcove that i'm going to turn into like basically a full-time youtube studio so what that means is more regular content and hopefully some more stuff outside of the podcast again like i mentioned a moment ago i'm going to try and do more tech tutorials the kitchen in a new place is crazy and it's set up perfectly to film cooking videos. There's basically, uh, it opens out into the living room and where the stove and everything is, is kind of like open concept. So I can actually set up the camera gear in the living room and film into the kitchen and it's all lots of room, lots of space. So I'm really looking forward to that. So Lots of cool stuff coming on the horizon, and I'm going to do my best to stay on top of weekly drops between now and then. We don't take possession for another, say, three months, um, but I'm just going to be honest. Shit is really crazy right now, so if I miss the odd week, shit happens. I'm doing my best, and and sometimes it's not perfect. So with all that out of the way, let's get into this week's episode. First up, as always, is kind of a training and diet episode, and this is kind of an interesting pivot since the last time we talked So last time we talked, I was pretty focused on, I thought I was coming into this big bulking cycle and we were going to jack up the food again and jack up all the supplements. And I've really increased, I've jacked up the supplements, I've jacked up the training intensity, but my coach has kept my food the same. And this is the first time that I feel like I'm going through a, a, a genuine recomp or recomposition. And let's take a moment and talk about what that is. So everyone would agree that when you are in a caloric surplus, you can gain muscle, but everyone would also agree you're also gonna put on a little fat. Everyone would also agree that when you are in a caloric deficit, you are gonna lose fat and also probably a little bit of muscle. Where the contention comes into play is in the middle ground. So recomposition, theoretically, would be keeping your calories at around maintenance, maybe slightly above, maybe slightly below, and somehow losing fat while building muscle. And even I would say even a slightly looser definition would be as long as you're not losing any muscle and you're still losing fat, that would also loosely be considered a recomp. But the true version of a recomp is like slight muscle loss accompanied by slight muscle gain. And you do this by really targeting maintenance calories. And it works better. Like I'm already carrying a little bit of fluff because I've essentially been bulking for the last two and a half years. This works, if if you're really lean, this is gonna be very difficult to do because there's nothing to recomp per se. So if you're carrying a couple extra pounds, because the philosophy is, you still have excess calories, even though you're only ingesting maintenance calories. Because you have excess calories in your body, they're still available to build uh, the mu- the new muscle mass or the new the new lean tissue. And I can honestly say, for the first time, I feel like I'm hitting a, like a, my stride in a good recomp. I'm down two pounds in the last week and a half. I'm 253 right now, which is the lightest I've been. I want to say since before Christmas but I feel bigger. And not only that, my performance in the gym and my performance at cardio is increasing. So that's kind of what the markers that you want to keep an eye on. If your food is the same, performance is increasing and weight is decreasing, you can with a fair degree of confidence confidence, say that you're recomping. If you really wanted to get anal- you would caliper some body fat measurements or go get a DEXA scan, or even you could do some like muscle mass measurements just to keep on track. The other thing though I do is I take pictures on a weekly basis. So I know I'm not losing size. In fact, I feel bigger. Um, I also have increased vascularity. My forearms really start to pop. I start in my calves and my shins particularly. That's where veins come out first on me. And then I'll even get a little vein kind of on my hips starting to peek out. And all that stuff is starting to happen, which only happens when I lean out. So as far as training goes, I'm still following a four and two split. So I lift four days a week. I do cardio two days a week, and I take one day a week off. My lifting is arms, legs, chest and front shoulders, back and rear shoulders. And the goal is to keep my leg training day as far separated from my backpack cardio days as possible, and I do those in conjunction. So for example, how it's working right now is I would do backpack cardio Monday, Tuesday, and then do legs on maybe a Thursday or a Friday. I find I'm pretty capable of doing legs one to three days, like even one to two days after the cardio. Where I need the break is between the leg day and the cardio. I need at least three days after leg day before I go do cardio again, or my performance just really suffers. And I, I wouldn't even mind if the performance suffered if I thought there was a strong argument that it was increasing my capacity overall. But I don't think it does because the whole point of the cardio days is to tax my cardiovascular system, not my musculoskeletal system. So I, I want to enter those cardio days with like refreshed legs so that I can push my cardio capacity as far as I can. With all that being said, that's going phenomenal. I'm I'm feeling better. My joints are not as worn down because I'm only lifting four days a week. I'm getting a little bit of tendonitis on the inner sides of both my elbows that kind of flares up after arm day. Um, Another trick I was doing though, is I was doing arm day after chest and back day, and I found it was just too much um, on my elbows three days in a row. So now I'm breaking it up and I'll do arms, then legs, chest back, day off, hiking, then arms, legs, and you, you know, rinse and repeat. So I may run this all the way to, and here's the big news the sheep hunt, all the way to the sheep hunt. I don't even, yeah, we'll see what my coach says. I'm really enjoying kind of leaning out a little bit. I feel more athletic. Everything just feels better. My sleep is better. I'm still snoring like a motherfucker, but, um, not waking up multiple times throughout the night. So I like where I'm at right now. So I think the game plan is just gonna be to keep cruising like this for the next three months. But as always, I'll assess things through pictures, performance, and other health markers, and then make decisions as we go. In one of the most recent podcasts, I made some comments about keto, um, being in ketosis, and the kind of efficacy of fats versus carbs in backcountry diets. And somebody asked for some clarification and I realized I didn't do a great job at describing the concept of of adaptation into ketosis. So let me take a moment and, and break that down. I'm not saying you can't use fat as a primary energy source, you can. And in fact, if you're fully adapted into ketosis, It works quite well. Um, And what do I mean by fully adapted into ketosis? So it takes your body anywhere from like four to 14 days to switch primary fuel sources. So if you're just a regular dude, eating regular food, doing your thing, and you're like, I wanna go on a keto diet, it's gonna take at least four to 14 days on a strict keto diet in order for your ketones which are measured in millimolars to get high enough for you to say and like i think it's it's around 2 1.5 to 2 millimolars per whatever um in order for you to say confidently i am now in a state of ketosis i want to clarify another point here cuz all these exogenous ketones have come on the market chugging a bunch of exogenous ketones and then checking your blood markers is not indicative of actually being in ketosis. It's just indicative uh, it would be like doing a blood alcohol test after drinking a bunch of booze. Like it's just measuring the exogenous amount of ketones that are now present in your in your bloodstream. Now, exogenous ketones can help get you over the hump, but you're still going to need that adaptation time to fully kick over. And here's what a lot of people don't fully realize. You cannot just have a regular Joe Blow diet and then go 80% carbs for your backcountry hunt out of nowhere. You will you'll be getting adapted right near the end of your hunt. And there's also a thing called keto flu. As you adapt to ketosis, the body normally goes through, it feels like you have the flu. I've gone into ketosis multiple times. I used to prick my finger every morning and check my ketones, all that shit. It was crazy. And as you kick over it, and that's normally how you know it's working. You get a little bit of the keto flu and you're like, oh, here we go. We're we're being non-carb adapted and now we're going to be fat adapted. So, and that takes time to, to, to get through. Uh, there's another thing about ketosis. It blows my mind the kind of misinformation floating around out there. Anything that has any type of sugar or carb, it like... People who think they're in ketosis and then you're eating fruit. No, you're not. That's a carbohydrate. You also, the true definition of ketosis, you also can't have large bolus doses of protein because then this thing called glucogenesis occurs and the, the breaking down of large doses of protein actually creates an insulin spike, which mimics a carbohydrate response, which will kick your body out of ketosis. Ketosis was actually created like way back in the day for... I think it was either, I should probably go look this up. It was either children with leukemia or something else. And they needed, they found that if they kept them on a a ketosis-based diet, like all these other markers improved. There's even a lot of research to suggest that um, while being in ketosis, while getting chemotherapy has a lot of additional health benefits. But When you see these people posting on Instagram and they're eating like a charcuterie board that's full of meat and cheese, and they're like, here's my keto snack. It's not keto because there's so much protein in that meat. The glucogenesis is kicking you out of ketosis. So I need to be very clear here. In order to be in ketosis, Most studies say that only 5% of your calories should come from protein. I want you to think about that for a moment. That's the other one thing that's kind of confusing when you see people using these for like hypertrophy-based diets and and other things. It's very confusing. And listen, I'm not gonna tell people what they can eat. If you're eating a pseudo keto diet and you feel good and you think you're performing better, have at her, man. Personally, I don't give a shit. What bothers me though is when people spout this misinformation like it's gospel and it's not. There is very clear scientific research and an abundance of it done on ketosis, how to get into ketosis, how to stay in ketosis, what dietary devices will kick you out of ketosis, and how to measure objectively whether or not you're in ketosis. So now that all of that is out there, when you are in ketosis, fat is a phenomenal source of energy. And if you were already fat adapted and you wanted to go in the backcountry and use fat as your primary fuel source, I fully support this great plan. However, if you are not fat adapted and you try to do that, personally, I think it's going to backfire. Best case scenario, you're just not going to be as efficient. Worst case scenario, your body's going to try and kick over into ketosis, you're going to get keto flu, and you're going to feel kind of run down and burnt out by your hunt. And I don't think that's wise. I think you should probably try and keep your diet as close to it is on a daily basis while you're in the backcountry, so that as few things change as possible so that your body doesn't have to acclimate to anything new other than the variables that you're already adjusting like temperature, elevation, Sleep system. Like, there's enough changing already when you go into the backcountry. You don't need to add your kind of macronutrient breakdown as another variable or another challenge that you're going to ask your body to adapt to while you're away. So, anyways, that's a bit of a rant, but it was really important to me that I cleared that up because it was something I've studied quite intensely um, and and did for quite a while. In fact, there's a six month period in my life where I was on this one shake a day diet, literally. All I had was one shake a day. There's this like Soylent um, blog guy. If anybody doesn't know, there's this old famous movie with Charlton Heston called Soylent Green. And you know, it's people. And basically there there's this like dystopian society that drinks this thing called Soylent Green. And it turns out at the end of the movie that it's made from people. But it's like this miracle shake and it's all they need to survive. And this guy's kind of done a play on that. I'd done all the research to say, if you only had one meal a day, what would it need to contain in order for you to be healthy? And, and so I did that whole thing for six months and that was quite interesting as well. Um, but just take everything that you hear around the whole ketosis argument with a grain of salt and the whole, like using fat as an energy source with a grain of salt, because there's a lot of misinformation out there. And the surprising thing to me is like, there's a lot of areas of study where, scientific consensus has not really been reached and you can kind of say, yeah, there's pretty strong arguments at both sides of the table. Ketosis is not one of those areas. There is very strong scientific consensus and there's an abundant amount of research as uh, in relation to all the things that I've just discussed. So take some time, do some research and then make up your mind uh, with an informed opinion. All right. Content creator of the week. There is a BC guy named Noah Redka who started a new podcast called Days Outside, and I think he's taken a really interesting spin on on how to approach this space. I target the kind of people who've already done a few trips, want to know a little bit more, tend to be pretty hardcore, and are looking to go deep in the backcountry for extended periods of time. But I think there's a whole other segment of of the population well, and actually Noah specifically kind of defined his value proposition in relation to this segment of the population. That's the people who've done nothing yet and are looking to just cross the chasm into maybe their first outdoor trip or maybe even their first big hike or something like that. And he's targeted his podcast and his IG channel to that demographic and tries to provide some useful information. So the podcast is called Days Outside. The uh, Instagram channel is Days Outside. It might even be daysoutside.ca. I'm sure if you search it, you'll see it's got like this kind of like sun logo thing. Looks really cool. Um, and I think he's doing really high quality stuff. He's just getting started. So it doesn't have a big following yet, but I think it's worthwhile. And if you have friends or family that aren't as far along as you are, but are looking to kind of catch up. I think Noah's channel might be a good place to start because there's some valuable information there. All right, without further ado, let's hook into some questions. So up first, Nicholas Anthony Walker, how do you know when a bear is bluff charging and when it's actually coming to attack? This is one of the things that you're unfortunately only gonna know after the fact. I have personally never been bluff charged. I did tell a story on this podcast about my brother, being bluff charged and I can't think of any ways or signs that you would visibly see if a bear was that close where you could say, oh no, he's only going to bluff charge. I don't have to worry about it. Like let's take a situation where you are armed with a firearm and you're being approached by a grizzly bear and it's close enough to charge you. If you've done everything within your power, like you fired a warning shot, you've made a bunch of noise, you've, yeah, really exhausted your options and he's close enough to charge or she, by the time that bear charges, I'd put a bullet in it. I would not wait around to see, oh, maybe this is only a bluff charge because they're going to be so close already that you're not going to have that much time on your hands. The only variable there I would say was distance. If the thing is like further than 50 or 75 yards away and it starts to do a little sprint towards you. I've seen that before. And then only runs like 10 yards and pulls up. That's the kind of thing that you still have enough distance between you and the bear to kind of note and make an educated decision about. But yeah, I would say that really after the fact is the only time you're gonna be able to say, well, what that bear did was only a bluff charge. It wasn't a real charge. And I covered a whole bunch of stuff on bear safety in a previous episode. And I I, I still say your best defense is a good offense in that be aware of where you are. Don't get into the situations that you can't get yourself out of. However, sometimes despite your best efforts, you're going to be in a situation that you simply can't do anything about. I think it's really important to have bear spray very close by. Like it should either be chest mounted or hip mounted. Um, You should practice with that spray, pulling it out of the holster, pulling the pin, even firing it in a safe place just so you know what it's going to be like and how far your effective range and all that kind of stuff is. And when you can have a firearm, I think it's good. I carry a, a Kafaru gun bearer, and that's one of the reasons I carry it. Having a gun strapped to the back of your backpack while hiking through British Columbia, probably not the best idea in the world, um, especially in grizzly country, because it ain't going to do you any good whatsoever if you get attacked by a grizzly bear and you've got a gun strapped to the back of your backpack. So I like the gun bearer because with like a flick of the wrist, I can have my rifle out and at the ready. Not a great answer, Nicholas, but... It's the best that I got. All right, Jay Frost 9. Do you take a multivitamin? Do you recommend it for someone who works out four times a week? If so, over the counter drugstore brand or a specific stack like Animal Pack? So, I recently switched vitamin source to a new product called Vita HD from a company called HD Muscle, which is a Canadian company here led by Dorian Hamilton and the boys out in Burlington really respect their, their product and their ethos. They make really high quality stuff. It's not cheap. Um, one of the things to keep in mind about vitamins in particular, a multivitamin is they've done a lot of like absorption and dissolve tests. And most of these pills are so intensely compressed that they don't even fully break down within your bloodstream. What I like about the Vita HD product is that it's a powder in a gel cap. So my body breaks it down a lot easier. You're also supposed to take five to 10 pills a day. That's another very good sign. If it's literally like one pill per day, eh, you're probably not getting what you actually need. Most people are going to tell you that a well-rounded diet of whole foods is going to be enough micronutrients that you don't need to worry about an extra multivitamin. I tend to disagree, part of it, because I eat more of like a bodybuilding style diet, so it's a lot of the same stuff, and I don't eat a lot of varied micronutrient-dense foods. And even if I did, it's like no harm to have a little extra. So I like something that's going to be multiple pills, something pretty high quality. It, 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 and and I don't mind paying for quality when it comes to my supplements. Um, and again, I prefer like a powder in a gel cap because it's going to be more easily digestible. But if you're in Canada, I really like the HD Muscle line and specifically the Vita HD um, product. If you're in the States, I really like Revive products. They've got a lot of really interesting products. And I think- you know, you also mentioned in your question, the animal pack. Um, I think that's great too. I've never personally used that product, so I can't really give it my stamp of approval, but animal makes some really good stuff. So, um, I'd have to look into it specifically, but I feel pretty confident that that's likely a a fairly decent product as well. But in answer to your question, yeah, especially if you're training four times a week, I think it would be a great supplement to add, um, to your stack. The older I get, I realize the more money I spend on like health-related supplements as opposed to performance-related supplements. What I mean by that, in back in university, all I really gave a shit was like creatine and protein. Now I'm way more concerned about like turmeric and curcumin and astragalus and, um, citrus bergamot and like weird kind of vitamins and herbs and stuff that are much more about like cardiovascular health and um, cognitive function. And like, those are the things that I'm spending most of my money and time researching these days. And I think there's more benefit there than you would think because when the machine is running at full capacity and is fully optimized, everything you do gets better. So you're going to build muscle quicker. You're going to recover quicker. You're going to be sharper and more focused mentally. So yeah, man, definitely throw a multivite in your stack for sure. Knives. This is from One Tree Leather who I need to get in touch with because he makes some crazy leather goods and I want him to make me something, maybe with a Mindful Hunter logo on it or something. Um, I'm not a big knife freak, to be honest with you. I don't have it in my pocket right now. My EDC is from Benchmade, Benchmade Knives. I think it's a 931 Osborne with a G10 handle. And it's just like a nice, slim, everyday carry. I can wear it in dress pants. I can wear it to work. I carry it with me most days. It's crazy sharp. I've never actually sharpened it. I've owned it for almost two years now. I don't use it that much. So there's nothing, there's no reason for it to get dull. So I have that knife. When I go hunting, I I really only take my Havalon Piranha in my kill kit. I do all my meat processing and gutting with that. I do have another backup like cheap Gerber thing just for like, you know, if I need to cut something shitty like rope or something like that, and I, I don't want to wreck a prana, I'll use that. Or even if I had to pry something open or it's like an old shitty knife that I don't care about. So if like the tip breaks off while I'm prying stuff, it, it doesn't matter. Um, someone just came in downstairs. So you're going to hear some like noise from my dog and stuff. Just ignore it. Um, the one I, 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 I have, Heard a lot that a good idea in the backcountry is to carry one fixed blade knife. That's a little bit beefier. So, if you need to do stuff like, I want to say get firewood, but I don't really understand how a knife is going to help me do that, anyways. Anyways, I've heard that recommended. I don't personally do it. I have a couple of other, like, lower end knives that people have given me to gifts. I used to use the outdoors edge knife and it it was a, it was a swiveling knife. So it's got an orange handle on it. And one side of the blade was like a skinning knife. So it had a really relaxed curve to it. And then you pressed in a button and you basically spun the blade around in the handle. And then on the other side was a gut hook. That was a really cool product. But once I started processing more animals. I just realized I was more of a Havilon Piranha guy. I don't like messing around with sharpening blades and all that kind of stuff. It's way easier to just use one of those surgical steel blades until it's dead, dispose of it, slap on another one and keep going. So I, I think there's some really nice, I like Benchmade knives in particular, and there's some really nice skinning knives. I think one's called the Altitude but they're like 300 bucks, that's the other thing. And the Prana is like 50 bucks, 50 blades is like another 50 bucks. And you've got like 10 years worth of processing animals for hundred bucks. And if you lose it, it's cheap to replace. So yeah, don't have a whole lot of feedback on knives. I'd like to get some some nicer ones moving forward, but we'll see. So up next from c 24 what would be the order of dehydrated food companies best to worst. Um, I'm going to list four from worst to best. Worst is Mountain House. Next worst, Alpen Fair. Next worst, uh, Sorry, so slightly better. So Mountain House is the worst. Getting better from there, we have Alpen Fair. One step better from that is Backpacker's Pantry. And then the best, in my opinion, is Peak Refuel. Now, there are some more cottage industry ones like Off-Grid Food Co. and Heather's Choice and stuff like that. I- I've personally never eaten Off-Grid, so I'm not gonna make a comment on that. My issue is their marketing system. I This like weekly drop shit, it just doesn't do it for me. Like if you're going to release a product, make enough of it that I can just go on your website and buy it because I'm not going to like look for weekly emails and then prepare my shit three months in advance. Like it just, it's too much of a pain in the ass for me. I, I want to just be able to go to your online store and order my stuff a month before I go for a hunt. So I haven't messed with them very much, but I've heard very good things about the quality after trying them all peak refuel for me is head and shoulders. The best. Two main reasons. The flavors, I just really like, I like the flavors they have. I tend to go in for like the like fettuccine Alfredo's and beef stroganoff's and um, those, like not even, I don't want to say like the creamy ones, but even the pasta primavera. I don't like the rice as much. And the funny thing is I eat way more rice at home. But the reason I don't like rice and dehydrated meals is that, I find it never really dehydrates all of it. And no matter what you do, you get some like crunchy rice in the corners and it's just disgusting. The second reason I like peak refuel so much is the protein content. Uh, it's way higher than most of the other ones. The only one that comes close is Backpacker's Pantry. And I I think the flavor profile might even be a little bit better of Mountain House and Alpenfair than Backpacker's Pantry, but Backpacker's Pantry has so much protein, I'm going to put it ahead of those ones. Now, across all four of these brands, there's at least one or two flavors that I would highly recommend and I love. But if you were just going to stick with one brand, and here's the thing, being in Canada... Ordering from a bunch of different places gets really expensive with shipping and Peak Refuel always has lots of stuff in stock. I, the, Black Ovis also carries their stuff and their shipping is really affordable. And normally they've got like a 10% discount code. So that also really helps out. But yeah, Peak Refuel is the best. Mountain House is the worst. Best backcountry steripen. Um, I have only ever used the Adventurer Opti. And the funny thing is, this is the one that Snyder always complains about, and I know why. Batteries die randomly. I'm gonna say that flat out. I, I, like it's hard to give this product like a full five star recommendation because it works amazing, but then just every now and then the batteries will die randomly, and there doesn't seem to be any rhyme or reason for it. I almost think there's a fault in the wiring inside, and like, so sometimes the battery's just being drained, and you don't know it is. Um, I don't really have any other explanation. The trick I've found is that I always carry a spare battery with me. And no matter how many times it's died on me, as long as I just put a a new battery in, it works again. And listen, it's not like the battery dies every third day. I've never had more than one battery go on a trip and I've gotten through multiple trips without going through a battery. The thing that's annoying is like, I've tested batteries before going on a trip and they're full and then it would die. So I don't know if I would recommend, plus it also takes really weird batteries like the C1032 or whatever the fuck they are, the little short stubby lithium ion ones. The one Snyder always recommends, it's like the old school one. I don't even know what it's called. It's gigantic though, and it takes four AA batteries. It's a big white thing. It's way bigger than the Adventure Opti. And that's the one that most people go with. It's a little bit bigger, but it takes double A's. So it's going to be more compatible with the rest of your items that take batteries most likely. Um, so if you were going to buy a brand new pen today, maybe that's the one I would recommend. I've never swapped out simply because I like the size of my adventurer and carrying one spare battery. I would do that anyways, just, just to be practical. So it's not that big a deal for me. Um, and, and while we're on that topic, SteriPen for me, head and shoulders, the most um, efficient, best water purification tool in my experience. I don't even own any pumps or filters. All I own is the SteriPen um, and I love it. Do you edit your own videos? If so, what program do, you, do I use? Um, absolutely. I edit all my own stuff. I edit all my own photos. I edit all my own videos. I do all of it. I use Adobe uh, Premiere Pro. So this is a content creator you know, tip for all you guys if you're getting into this. Just get the Adobe Creative Suite Bundle subscription. I think it's like 60 bucks a month, which sounds like a lot but you get access to every single software program that Adobe makes. So Photoshop, Lightroom, uh, Illustrator, Premiere, Audition, like all of them, it's crazy. And once you start getting into this kind of shit, You need all of them because you're going to use the three big ones are Lightroom, Photoshop, and Premiere. But then it's also nice. Sometimes when you want to do something in audition, you need After Effects to like open up the animation properties of or import a template. So you've got that one as well. And lots of times you are editing 90% of your photos in Lightroom, but then when you want to make a thumbnail, you got to open Photoshop. So For me, it was just easier to have the whole bundle. And let me know if you guys want me to do some tutorials. Part of the reason I haven't is that there's just a lot better people than me to give tutorials on the internet. But I also think from editing and shooting a lot of backcountry filming, there might be things that I do that not a lot of other people are doing. Or it's just that you guys are particularly interested in how to edit the things that I do. So in the next month or so here, I'm gonna be leaving for spring bear. So I probably have the chance to do some editing tutorials on that film. And then coming up after that, we've got um, August sheep hunt looming quite closely. So that'll be another opportunity to shoot some tutorial related content. Misguided Hunter says, any changes in fitness routine going into a sheep hunt? So I'm gonna go back to everything that I said at the beginning. And I'll even go back a couple more episodes. Previously, I was lifting five days a week and hiking one day a week. And then I'll be honest, most times for at least a couple months when I was like mid cycle, my supplements and food would get to a point and I'd be carrying so much water that the calf and lower back pumps were just out of control. And I wouldn't be able to hike for maybe a month or two. And then I'd cut all the supplements and food down a month before a hunt. And then I could get back into hiking. Two things. Now that I'm in my 40s and now that I'm over 250 pounds, I found in the goat hunt, it's just too much. I need to be in better cardiovascular shape more consistently throughout the year so that I don't have to like cram so much cardio training so close to the hunt. That was a big takeaway from me. So I specifically structure my week now to put more emphasis on cardio. So ever since I got back from the goat hunt, it's been two backpack cardio hikes a week. They're an hour and a half long. I burn a thousand calories, a thousand vertical feet. I wear a 50 pound backpack. They're ball busting, um, hikes. And I do two of those every week. I've never missed a week. Um, I started changing the supplements that I'm using in my stack and everything else, and I've got it to the point, lean down a little bit, where the calf pumps and the lower back pumps don't seem to be a problem. So this is super good news. So in specific answer to your question, yes, I'm changing it, but it's not even just because it was a sheep hunt. It's because I wasn't as fit on the goat hunt as I wanted to be. So I would say as general practice, people... Be in shape all year. It's just so much easier. However, if it's not an option, you got to start three or four months out and put an emphasis on backpack cardio. I've said it before and I said it again. I don't give a shit about CrossFit, fucking mountain fitness, elk shape bullshit that has you doing cleaning and jerks and a bunch of this other fucking nonsense. It's unnecessary. What you need to be good at the cardiovascular requirements of hunting is backpack cardio because that's what you're doing in the mountains. Now, if you have more time and more of an inclination in your personality to do more of that other stuff like I do with my lifting, then do it. But don't confuse yourself. The priority for hunting is backpack cardio. And you got to get to the point where you can do it like regularly and intensely, and your body holds up. And wear the boots you're going to hunt in, where the socks you're going to hunt in, where the clothes you're going to hunt in. Like it should feel like you're hunting because that's also going to help you be more acclimatized to the to the I I'm kind of going to get woo woo here, but like I'm a big guy on like visualizing and and being able to kind of predict the circumstances you're going to find yourself in. And if you're in your gear, in your environment more often than when it's a real world scenario and you're in front of that animal, it's just gonna feel like another day. And it's gonna be one less variable that's making you feel weird and respond poorly and think too much. Like it should just feel like another day so that you're not thinking, you're just behaving. So anyways, hike more with a backpack. That's <laughs> all I'm gonna say as far as... Um, how I would shift or adjust my hunting going into a sheep hunt goes. All right, I'm next. Where, when is your bodybuilding show? What's your refuel plan for hunting season? The next show that's remotely possible is in December. It's the Vancouver Pro Show, and they're having a regional qualifier the day before the Pro Show. Um, I don't think I'm big enough. That's just a fact of the matter. And if I wanted to have a chance at being big enough for that show, I think I would have to focus exclusively on putting on mass for the next four months and then exclusively on prepping down for the next four months after that. And that would be too much of a compromise for the sheep hunt that I got coming up um, because I just wouldn't be in good enough shape because I'd have to put on too much size too fast. And even then... Here's the thing. If if I could do that and I knew for a fact I would be competition ready, I might do it anyways and just muscle through it. But I I, like at this age, it's just it takes a little bit longer to put on size than it did when I was in my 20s and 30s. So um yeah, realistically, maybe next summer. This has been a huge lesson for me. Like I'm a sprinter, I like doing things flat out, balls to the wall. And I thought it was going to take me a certain amount of time to get ready for this show. And it's taking me so much longer than I thought. But my goals have also shifted. Like the acceptable, the physique that would be acceptable for me to walk on stage with, what my vision of that is, has changed a lot too. And it's like, I don't wanna do this shit just to show up. I wanna be competitive. And no, I'm not gonna beat some 25-year-old. I get it, I'm in a master's category. But that being said, I watch people at my gym get ready for their first shows and they're like these skinny little pieces. And it's just like, guys, what the fuck are you doing? Like, do you not have any friends to pull you to the side and tell you you're not ready for this? You need to eat and lift heavy for another three years before you're going to be anywhere remotely close to having a physique that deserves to be on stage. So that's where I'm at. I am still just as committed to the goal as I ever was, and I will step on stage, but I've been forced to recognize the reality of the situation is it's just going to take me longer than I originally wanted it to. And hunting at the same time is a compromise. I could do it faster if I didn't have to stay in hunting shape. But I also think for cardiovascular reasons at my age, I'm better off staying in at least relatively lean shape throughout the years and not just becoming this like bloated war pig of a fucking lifter. So yeah, that's that. Maybe December, highly doubt it. Most likely next summer. All right, Corey Wilson 13 says, mountain ops ignite on the way to replace the daily energy drink experience. I don't know what he means. Maybe he ordered some Mountain Ops Ignite and he's going to use that to replace the daily energy drink. Um, Probably going to be a little bit controversial here, but I'm not a fan of Mountain Ops personally. I don't want to kind of... I don't want to rain on anybody's parade. And if you like their products, listen, I'm not going to go ahead. I mean, maybe technically they're they're good products, but I have a big problem with their kind of marketing tactics and the personalities of the owners and just some other things that kind of rub me wrong about the company. And the only reason I preface that is that I have no idea what the ingredients are in Mountain Ops Ignite. Now let's assume it's a pre-workout. If it's a pre-workout, I would not replace an energy drink with a pre-workout, but if it's just like a like a stimmy daily drink that maybe has some like caffeine and some um, essential amino acids in it, that that would be okay. But pre-workouts have a bunch of other products like Pico Two and beta-alanine and creatine and um, citrulline and things that are specifically engineered to increase kind of the hypertrophic response when training at the gym. And these things are wholly unnecessary if you're just looking for a little pick-me-up. So if you were like having a Red Bull at three o'clock in the afternoon, instead of a coffee, I would not replace that with a pre-workout because they are completely different products engineered for completely different reasons. I'm a big caffeine guy. I love coffee. And I think coffee is the best stimulant on the planet Lots of times I will pair an espresso with my pre-workout and I don't drink a whole lot of, of energy drinks. Maybe if I'm on a big road trip or, you know, yeah, it's pretty rare. I bet you I drink maybe a half a dozen every year, if that. Morning or evening for black bears and effects of rain. Thank you. First things first, go listen to the podcast that I did last week with Backcountry Bloodline because we talked specifically about this. But I'll do a quick recap. The answer is evening. If I could only hunt one time of the day, I would go like 4 p.m. to sunset. Um, It's just, just so much more activity. And Simon, my buddy, brought up a good point on that podcast that he also sees a higher density of boars during that time. So even though there's bears out during the day, they tend to be younger boars and sows. And the big old boars tend to come out more in the evening. And I shared this on the podcast as well, but a good buddy of mine, Jeff Lander, who runs Primitive Outfitting, kills a ton of bears every year up there. And he won't even let his hunters and guides go out before like three or four in the afternoon because he thinks... You're just blowing out the good spots and you're better off to just sit at camp, chill out, enjoy your day, and then go hunt in the evenings. Um, So yes, 100% evening before morning for bears, which kind of makes you feel lazy because it's like, I'm hunting. I should be up at 6 a.m. And nah, fuck it. Sleep in, hunt at night. Um, Rain. This is an interesting thing. Some of the best bear hunting I've ever seen is like after rain, So you'll get like a decent rain during the day. And this is the other reason why evening is nice. It's pretty common for the rain to break around that, you know, kind of late afternoon, early evening, three to 6 p.m. And then the evening be rain-free. Those are some of the best um, bear hunting times I've ever had. But I've also seen a shitload of bears just right in the rain. If it was raining, I'd still go out. I mean, ideally, it's not raining, Rain's also going to help keep your scent down, depending on you know what the wind is doing. So that there could be some advantages to hunting in the rain. I wouldn't stay in just because it's raining, but I do think there's you're going to have a better hunting experience when it's when it's not raining. But I would I would still say the perfect hunting experience is like some scattered showers throughout the day, and then the sun comes out and it starts to dry up in the evening. Those boars are just going to flood out to whatever grass is nearby. All right, Joel Hunt says tips for getting over the fear of sleeping overnight in the backcountry solo. It's funny how often I get this question and I feel bad because it's not something that's ever really tripped me out that much, but maybe I'll share some tips that I've gotten some of the things that I do. One is sleeping pills, like a mild sleeping pill, and I think it might even be just a placebo effect, but um it, it, I've used them in the past. Also, sometimes you're so tired from hiking. It's not a, they're not necessary, but just having them, I think is a good idea because then if you do decide to use them, you've got them in your kit. So sleeping pills is one tip. Podcasts or an audio book is another tip. And even just bringing a regular book. Cause I find the worst time is like that 10 to 15 minutes after you crawl into your bag, and maybe you need to wind down a little bit before you fall asleep. That's when your mind starts to run away with you. But if you've got a book to read or an audio podcast to listen to or an audio book, it's gonna keep your mind occupied for that 10 to 15 minutes. And then you're gonna be, your eyes are gonna start to nod and you're just gonna, you're gonna end up passing out and just putting the book down. That's another tip. Um, keeping your bear spray close by or your gun close by. So if something does happen, and I'm not saying that so that, I'm saying that for the psychological impact that you can use that to console yourself. Like if you're stressed out, you just reach over, oh, there's my gun. If something happens, there we go. Or, oh, there's my bear spray. If something happens, there we go. Also, take the right steps before you go to bed. Like if you're in bear country, go hang your food, get everything out of your tent that would have a scent or attract them to you. Because then if you start to hear a noise, you're gonna be able to rely on the fact that you did what was necessary anyways. So there's a lower likelihood that they're going to come to the tent. And then the last thing is just be mentally firm with yourself. You don't give in to fear. It's okay to acknowledge it and accept it like, yeah, I'm a little anxious right now. I I think it sounds like there's a bear out there, but then own it and just don't give into it. But- I know there's dudes who've hunted in the backcountry for 20 plus years and still get scared every time they go to sleep out in the bush. So it's also some people, something some people just have to like suck up in and live with because that's the reality of the situation for them. So not great tips, but a little something for you to go on. All right. Noah, AKA days outside says early season archery mule deer tips. So if we're going to talk about early season mule deer, then we need to think about the fact that they're going to likely be in bachelor groups in the high country. So this has some benefits and it has some deficits. I would say early scouting is going to be a big thing and trying to figure out patterns. Um, with mule deer, m- most you're looking at like two bedding times during the day and some like mule deer fanatics could correct me on this, and I'm and I'm happy for the feedback. But for sake of argument, let's just say late morning and late afternoon. So like ten to eleven, and then like two to four. And what tends to happen is you glass them up at six, seven, eight o'clock in the morning. They're feeding or moving around, and then around you know sometime between nine and ten. They'll start to look for a bed and then they'll lay down. And then they're going to be there most likely until the sun changes direction or something happens. And normally when the sun comes over whatever it's behind or moves around and the shade disappears and the sun hits the deer, the deer is going to get up and start moving on. If If you're in the high country and the deer hasn't bedded, Unless you're in like an ambush type situation where you've patterned them and you have a high degree of confidence, they're going to come through some area or channel that's going to give you a shot. If we're talking spot and stock, don't make a play until the deer is bedded Um, because you're going to put a bunch of energy into it and that you're never going to be able to kind of close the deal, so to speak. So recognize that there's likely going to be two betting times during the day and Here's the other thing. If you don't blow them out, you can always glass them all the way to the afternoon one because that's probably going to be the longer betting time of the two. Um, And if you blow them out in the morning, they're going to be gone and you're not going to get the second chance. So play it rather conservatively. Wait until they've betted and then ideally make a play from above. Even if it requires way more walking and you got to go all the way around the back of some face, you want to come down on top of them. Um, that's gonna give you the highest chance of success. So there's there's a couple tips. It's not my specialty by any stretch of the imagination, um, but I think that's a solid place to start anyways. Matt Cholak says, I'm curious about your archery setup. So I run a Hoyt Pro Defiant 34 at 80 pounds with, um, with the QAD Ultra Rest. And I run a TrueBall XL AccuTouch five pin slider sight. My arrow setup right now is Black Eagle Rampage, 250 spine, 175 up front. My draw length is 29 and a half inches. My total arrow weight is 585 grains and I run the Iron Will component system and the Iron Will S125, the solid 125 grain double bevel broadheads. And I have had such phenomenal success with that system, I plan on changing nothing this year. In fact, I'm not really doing that much archery hunting this year, so I don't even think I need to really like build any arrows or do anything, I'm like ready to go in the next couple of weeks, I'm going to be doing a whole like spring archery episode because I've been trying to rehab this shoulder injury. I didn't shoot at all over the winter. And so I'm going to do this kind of like how to get back into archery episode. Like I'll tune my bow. I'll tell you how to like start practicing because like you just can't come out, you know, swinging for the fences. Like there is a there is a more efficient kind of practicing approach in my opinion when you haven't shot in a little while and i'm gonna get into like how to clean up your gear make sure everything's ready test some things and i'll get into all of that on that episode but that's my general setup and i've liked it really well i would like a new bow but the one i have still works and i've had better uses for um Money, For instance, I just bought a new camera that cost a shitload of money and I'd rather have a new camera to film backcountry hunts than a new bow to take on a hunt considering my current bow still works. Optics setup, what and why? My spotter is a Zeiss Harpia 95 millimeter. My main binoculars are Zeiss SF 10 by 42 victories and my kind of big binos are Swarovski 15 by 56 SLCs, the Coos Killers, uh, my tripod system, everything is Outdoorsman's. I have a medium compact and I have a tall and I run their pan head. I also have a CRI VA5 head that I'm not that big of a fan of, to be honest. The Outdoorsman's pan head is far superior in my opinion, and all my optics are set up to go directly onto the Outdoorsman's system. So it's a really nice, comprehensive little kit. Now it's expensive as shit, man. I've blown an unbelievable amount of money on optics, but not right out of the gate. I literally went from like $300 binos to $1,000 binos to $2,500 binos. Like I took my time and then it got to the point where I knew I was gonna be hunting for the rest of my life and I wanted the best glass that I could possibly get. A lot of people are gonna say, why Zeiss, not Swaro? really i don't think one excels over the other in quality um i like looking through zeiss a little bit better i've been lucky enough to use them both multiple times in the field the ergonomics of the swaro don't do a whole lot for me and the flattening elements of swaro vision also don't do a whole lot for me but i think all that stuff is personal preference no one is going to argue about the quality of of swaro glass and i think swaro Zeiss or Leica, you're in the same ballpark and it's you can't make a bad decision. And depending on your budget, I'd actually make recommendations from each of those three companies, depending on what you want to spend. I would love to try the NL Pures um, simply because they're supposed to really be something kind of new and different and um, bring something new to the table that I haven't tried before. But that being said, I love my stuff. I really like the ergonomics of the Zeiss. I really like the color profile of the Zeiss. And yeah, just in my opinion, it was the best glass for me. So that's what I run. All right, black bear field dressing tips and tricks. So both the bears I've killed, I had rugs made out of. The second one's still not done yet. So I'll talk about that a little bit. Um, I personally don't mess with, um, taking the skull or the paws out of a bear. I'm going to have a rug made out of now, if I was in the back country, I would, I would definitely take the skull out. I still don't think I'd fuck with the paws. It's just a highly skilled, um, um, technique. And I would rather leave it to a professional. Um, They're going to ding you a couple extra bucks, but so what? You're going to get some really nice looking stuff. So there's tip one is you're going to want to do behind the forearm incisions on all four legs. And you want to look for the crease of the hair because Depending on what you have done with your bear, if they do a full mount, it's gonna be easier to hide that with a seam. And if they do a rug, it's, a, it's, the, it's the perfect natural kind of splay. So come up the back of the forearm, do a Y incision up to the back of the jaw, take your time. Um, I've gotten a lot more finicky about how I take the hide off now because it creates a lot less work for the taxidermist when you drop it off. If there's a bunch of like fat and and muscle still left on there, he's going to ding you a cleaning fee for sure. So really take your time and try and provide a clean hide. Um, you can freeze it if you have to, or you can salt pack it. Um, I'm going in for sheep this year, so I'll take a five pound bag of salt with me so that I can salt the hide. And hopefully twice, like... Salt the hide, let it dry out, shake all it off, put more salt on the hide, and then wrap it up for the pack out, depending on the temperature. Um, but if I'm worried about it rotting, I want the ability to, to salt the hide. And the same thing goes for bears. A taxidermist is going to love a salted hide when it shows up. He doesn't have to thaw it out. It's just going to be a lot easier for him to work with. Um, yeah, that's really about all I got. I love bear meat, so try and get as much of it as you can. Now, here's the thing. I'm not as concerned about the quality of butchering when it comes to bear, because 90% of it, I'm going to do like sausages or ground just because you have to cook bear to a fair degree. But there's still lots of good roasts in there and other stuff that you want to take your time with. But like for the back straps, for example, I'm not going to have bear steak. So I'm just saying there's not as need to be as finicky with the actual processing for most of it, because you're going to either grind it up or slow cook a roast or do something like that with it. Although brining some hams can be, um, a really tasty approach as well. Um, but yeah, there's some general tips and tactics for processing bear learning animal habits for a beginner. I almost think this is a question I should go ask somebody else because I feel like it's something I haven't put enough time and energy into. I have a lot of experience in the mountains, but I don't have a lot of animal behavior experience. I think books are a great place to start. And I think old dudes, lots of old guys are willing to have conversations as long as you're not asking them, where should I go hunting? If you legitimately are curious about like glassing techniques and animal behavior patterns and different habits that animal ha- animals have during different times of the year and different times of the day, they'll talk about that shit with you all day. So that's probably the best tip I can give is that like, even if you got to find some old guys on a forum, if you're asking intelligent questions and you can show that you're willing to put in leg work, you'd be surprised how many people are willing to help out. Just don't ask for spots. It is like, it's just a conversation killer. Nobody's going to want to talk to you after that. But I, I, you know, I think that's a note to myself that this is something I need to spend more time on too. <laughs> Son of a bitch. My buddy Jeff says, have you ever missed a seven foot plus black bear with a rifle? Son of a bitch. The answer is yes. So, If any of you haven't seen it, my spring bear film from last year, there's a bunch of circumstances leading up to this and why I decided to try to shoot this bear with a rifle. But anyways, I tried to shoot this bear with a rifle. It was pissing rain. It was 320 yards. It was a bad rest. There was a bunch of things that went wrong, including me not having my turrets zeroed. It was like big learning lesson giant black bear i'd been working him for like three days i thought i hit him went and looked for him couldn't find him came back watched the footage looked like i might have just grazed him sat there the rest of the night and then yeah crazy enough right before dark this fucking bear comes back out and he has like a three inch bald spot on his ass of where the bullet grazed him i like i couldn't make this shit up if i tried And it was a huge learning opportunity for me. Um, I I got too excited. I didn't take responsibility for my rifle and having the the turrets zeroed. And yeah, there was just, it was a bit of a perfect storm of fuck ups that like basically I was responsible for all of them. Now, kind of won the lottery because Bear was completely missed clean, pretty much. Wasn't hurt. Um, so there was no consequences to my action, but it was enough of a wake up call that I approached things a little bit differently since then. Um, so yeah, uh, <laughs> that's an interesting story. And I'm headed back up there in about a month. And my goal is to find that bear again. Oh, and I just touched on this. I got one more question, but oh, two more questions. One more question is what cuts are you getting a bear processed into? So like I just said, most of it is going to be ground and sausage just because it's a lot easier to deal with, but I'll get some stew beef chunks. It's not stew beef, but stew bear chunks for the slow cooker and maybe some hams. Um, my butcher stopped doing hams and I just don't have the time or the energy to get into it right now, but when he was making them, they were delicious. Um, some roasts also for the slow cooker or sous vide, but that's primarily what I do. Simply because the trichinosis and everything else is just way easier to work with it like that. And we don't have a big family. Like it's just me, my wife, and my daughter. My daughter's five years old. My wife is a vegetarian. So having big cuts of meat is like a waste of time. So I like ground and sausage because it's easy to just take out enough for a day or two and then keep the rest frozen. Okay, final question camera gear i recently made a major upgrade in my main camera and i bought the sony a1 which is their flagship hybrid pretty ridiculous 50 megapixel sensor does 8k video shoots stills at 30 frames per second with a mechanical shutter it's a fucking demon of a camera probably more camera than i could ever need but fuck it you only live once So that's my main rig. My main lens is a 24 to 70 F 2.8 Sigma. And then I actually just put down a deposit. I'm buying a Sony G Master 35 millimeter F 1.4. That'll be like my second photography lens that I'll start taking with me on trips. I run a Rode video micro for um, for a microphone attachment on the top. I carry everything in a cotton carriers clip on my backpack. I run two GoPro Hero 9s. Highly recommend upgrading to the 9 if you're running another version because it shoots 5K. It's not the 5K that's as important as with that greater resolution, you can zoom in and still have like a 1080 video. So the problem with GoPros is that everything always looks flat and far away, even when you're 20 yards from something. But when you're shooting in 5K, you can like do a two times zoom and post and crop right in and shit still looks pretty high def. Um, They also shoot really nice slow-mo. If you go watch the intro to my goat hunting film that I just posted a month ago, all that slow-mo was done on a GoPro and they're weatherproof. I thought I killed my other camera on that hunt. I didn't but I was only able to use my GoPros and I was still really happy with the footage that I got. And then I have like a head, head mount for the GoPro. I have a uh, mountain biking clamp for handlebars that I've installed onto my trekking poles for the GoPro, just doing things trying to get more interesting footage. But that's essentially like the three big cameras of the Sony A1 the, and the two GoPros. And then I would try and give some camera recommendations, but it's really going to depend on your budget. Like if you had $1,000, $2,000, $3,000, I would give different recommendations for all of those budgets. So if anybody's looking for specific recommendations, just DM me on Instagram. Okay, as usual, that went on a little bit longer than expected, but I think we got a lot of good information out there. I want to thank everybody for submitting the questions this week. Next week, big episode. So I'm doing my first sheep hunting trip this summer and there's been some developments about you know who I'm going with and where we're going. And there's some just really cool stuff I want to talk about. So I'm going to be doing part one of the sheep hunt prep series, which is just me basically going to be talking about how I'm looking at this hunt, what I'm hoping to get out of it, some of my general preparation things that I'm going through right now. And then I am going to go with two other dudes. It's a pretty major development. Um, that I will get into next week. But then later on, I'm going to have those two guys on the podcast and we're going to get into a lot more specific gear-related conversations. And um, I'm really excited for that. So if there's anything sheep-related specifically that you want me to address, uh, shoot me a DM on Instagram or, or an email. So again, it's mindful underscore hunter on Instagram, mindful hunter on YouTube, and jay at mindfulhunter.com for emails. And as always,